NATO members and other Western countries have stepped up the supply of weapons to Ukraine. The UK pledged 14 Challenger II tanks, the US 31 Abrams tanks, and Germany dispatched 14 Leopard II tanks with more to follow. Other countries are sending anti-tank and anti-air systems, artillery pieces, drones, armoured vehicles, and other types of armoured vehicle and tank. Modern, sophisticated weapons are key to the success of Ukraine's spring counteroffensive. But all this different equipment, made in many countries, brings with it challenges. Ukrainian troops need to learn to operate the new equipment and need supplies and replacement parts. To try to overcome the identification challenge, the US has issued Ukrainians with a deck of 52 playing cards of various pieces of hardware to help minimize friendly fire incidents. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you like the content we're producing, do please consider becoming a patron. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Macbeth for the second time. Influential YouTuber, author, triathlete, army veteran and programmer. Ryan makes educational and awesome videos that look at the war in Ukraine from a military perspective. Today, we'll be talking about the two sides, strategies in the war, tactics, equipment, morale and training, and of course, the most recent developments and the long-awaited spring offensive. Ryan, it's great to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, it was uh, a fantastic conversation we had uh, last time. Lots of comments generated. And that was the best performing video on the channel at the time. I have to say, uh, Ben Hodges has, has trumped it since. Um, he's uh, extremely popular. But hopefully today's video maybe has a chance of uh, becoming the number one on the channel again. And I think there's a real hunger, isn't there, for people to understand what's going on. Certainly those who support Ukraine, there's a lot of complex issues. Uh, and for someone like me who has not been in the military, it can be quite difficult to kind of grapple with all of that. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think uh, I think I found my niche. I, uh, I, I, had, I had talked about this before, but uh, a couple of months ago, I was at dinner with this, this person who ran a private intelligence agency. And he asked me, you know, what, where do you want to go with this? And I said, well, you know, I, I like writing software, but, you know, I would like to be the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson of, of open source intelligence and military topics. I, I don't just cover Ukraine. I've talked about Sudan. I've talked about Iran. I've talked about China. Uh, I'd love to get into Armenia and Azerbaijan. It, it just it takes a while. But uh, <clears throat> it seems like there, there's certainly a, a, a role to play for someone who can who can distill military topics down to a level that the average person can understand, especially since, at least in the United States, only 0.5 percent, one half of one percent of anybody has ever been in the military. That's a very low number. So it's very easy to spread misinformation when the average person doesn't know how the military works. And of course, I mean, one of the things that always pops up on my, uh, you know, when I'm doom scrolling, you get uh, military experts looking at movies and uh, all the mistakes that get made in movies, especially kind of battle scenes. And I think one of the real risks of someone like me is to take a little bit of knowledge, uh, take a little bit from videos I've watched uh, of various experts and kind of presume that I know what I'm talking about. But when it comes to something like the spring offensive, this is an incredibly complex operation that uh, must be being organized behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. It's um, <clears throat> it, it, assuming there will be a spring offensive. 
uh, it's it's going to be tough, and you're you're going to be going against an adversary who has had time to prepare, and that's dangerous. And if that adversary, you know, there's essentially three course three courses of action. If the adversary decides to stay and fight, there's going to be a lot of casualties on the on the side of the attacker. If the adversary fights and then tries to retreat, will be some casualties, or you might see the total collapse of the Russian army, which is is possible. Uh, and there could be a mix of that as well, where in some places there's no collapse, in some places. There is a collapse in some places uh, people decide to, to stay and fight. So we really don't know what's going to happen until it actually until it actually happens. And the Ukrainians themselves uh, probably don't know. I mean, they they'll be hoping that it'll be something like the Kharkiv offensive, where, of course, the Russian troops were caught by surprise. Um, a very concentrated attack on the lines there meant that, uh, you know, Russian forces retreated, abandoned a lot of equipment. Um, you know, one of the memes, and it's not just a meme, is that the biggest supplier of equipment to the Ukrainian army is, of course, the, the Russian army. And they must be hoping to have some kind of repeat of, of that again. I think that's the plan. That That's that's the ideal. Um, the, the difference, well, there's a couple of differences. The first is that there are these these trench lines that are mined and they have to be defeated. There are ways of doing that. I mentioned the Miklik or the mine clearing line charge, which has been donated to Ukraine. That is a particularly good weapon for clearing minefields. It's essentially a rocket that's fired over the minefield. That rocket detonates. It clears a 100 by 8 meter section, and you can send troops through that breach. You do that in multiple locations across the line, now you have multiple breaches. Now you've created multiple problems, not a dilemma yet, but problems for your adversary to try to plug those holes and stop that breach. Uh, another advantage is that Ukraine now has some Western equipment like the Bradley. Uh, just today, I watched some footage of Bradley's rolling down a highway in Ukraine. And actually people were, were riding on top of the Bradley, which as, as an old, uh, NCO as an old non-commissioned officer, I, that, that almost gave me a heart attack. <clears throat> I would have been yelling at people, you know, like, Get, why are you riding on top of that Bradley? But it, it's something that Ukrainian forces do because they're they're used to riding on top of BNPs and, and uh, they're afraid of landmines. Essentially, they, they've made a risk calculation. They've said, all right, well, riding on top of this vehicle is safer than riding inside of it. That, that that would not fly in the American army. Like there would be, there there would be a lot of people lose their jobs if people rode on top of a vehicle. Uh, but one advantage of those Bradleys is that they they have good ISR, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance uh, tools, mainly thermal sights. And I I have a feeling I'm not sure since I saw people riding on these Bradleys, but. I have a feeling that Ukraine is actually going to use the Bradleys as mobile artillery spotting vehicles because they can use the Bradley's superior thermal systems to see where the bad guys are and then call in precision fires on those bad guys. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that might be a way they'll use them or they might use them as regular infantry fighting vehicles, uh, which in that case, superior ISR, again, works out in their favor because those thermal sites can find the bad guys. They can take care of tanks with tow missiles 
and they can take care of BNPs and BRDMs with their 25 millimeter cannons um, and BTRs as well. Uh, it's almost it's more of an even match way if if we're going BNP versus Bradley, but the Bradley has a slight advantage when it comes to ISR because it can see the the adversary before the adversary can see them. If you can see the adversary first, you can hit the adversary first. And from what I understand, a lot of times Ukraine isn't directly engaging when they don't have to. I think it's one of the reasons we really haven't seen tank on tank battles, at least not like Battle of Curse kind of armor or uh, Battle of 76 Easting or, you know, armor battles. It's because when Ukraine sees enemy armor, they just stop what they're doing, call in artillery, and they let the artillery do the work. Why send a, a tank when you can send a bullet, right? And are they likely to continue that? I mean, with the leopards they've got, um, there are you know many dozens from many different countries now uh, yeah. being sent across. Are you likely to see that direct confrontation, or are they going to carry on being, I guess, the word economical with force, very cautious and careful, and, and using that sort of precision technique that you talked about? That's a good question. I think there, there's two possibilities. The first is that they keep all of the Western armor in one company or one battalion and that's that's the thing that they use to smash through the enemy defenses or at least after the breach is made roll through the breach with western armor and get get in the rear lines and shoot everybody who isn't dressed like you that's that's number one the second thing they can do is they can split off those elements and they can they, they have to split them off in twos because really only a leopard can recover another leopard unless they have an armored recovery vehicle available only leopard is going to be able to recover another leopard. It's just too heavy to do any, anything else. So they could split them off in onesies and twosies and hook them up with the infantry and use the leopard's superior ISR, the superior sensors, to find the bad guys and do it that way. I, I actually don't know which, which route they're going to go. And in, uh, Coming from the American military, we would use tanks to smash through the breach. But... The Ukrainians have been fighting this war for a long time. They know what they're doing and they know how to approach things. And they're going to do the, the thing that is best for their particular situation. And Bakhmut is an interesting example, isn't it? Because supposedly they were given the advice not to hold on to Bakhmut, not to turn it into this attritional kind of meat grinder. I think the fear there was that the ratio of casualties on the Ukrainian side would would you know fall to an unacceptable level um from the reputedly sort of six to ten um or six or or ten to one that it had been before but they decided to hold on to that and that strategy actually seems to have worked it's ground down Wagner it's destroyed Wagner it's caused all sorts of friction between the regular forces and and Wagner and uh, I was going to tackle that one kind of later in, in the segment, but it's quite interesting uh, bit of news, isn't it, that came through today or yesterday. Uh, Prigozhin had this massive sweary rant um, with the backdrop of horrifically mutilated uh, Russian corpses, uh, you know, basically swearing at Shoigu, swearing at Gerasimov, and also claiming that he's going to be pulling Wagner out of Bakhmut. And then the footage yesterday showed massive sort of phosphorus incendiaries burning the center of Bakhmut um, and what's left of it down. I mean, first of all, let's tackle Ukraine's strategy. You know, do you think they were right? Do you think they understand what's going on on the ground, perhaps even better than, than outsiders? Yeah, well, th this is kind of where I fall apart because I am not a general. 
I am a sergeant. I'm pretty good at talking about stuff within 5,000 meters of my position. When it comes to strategy, I get a little fuzzy on that stuff. I, I think that Ukraine did what they thought was right for them. And I, I think I, I've said this before. Is it right to stay in Bakhmut? Yes. Is it right to leave Bakhmut? Yes. There's not going to be a right answer. The, the, it seems like what they did worked. But if, if things had just gone the other way a little bit, it might not have worked. And that's, that's war, man. War is hard. And when it comes to, to, to Wagner um, throwing all this equipment away or, or attacking and throwing all these men and equipment away and then backing off and saying, we're leaving. Well, I don't know what you do when you can't, when you can't uphold the terms of the contract. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Wagner is a contract military force. Contract militaries are any kind of security contractor is really good at doing security guard stuff like a, a unit like Wagner uh, or, or any kind of unit like Triple Canopy or uh, Wackenhut, Group 4 Folk. They're great at guarding a static place or guarding a rear line area. When it comes to actually attacking and assaulting and moving as a unit, you're, you're not really, you're not necessarily fighting for your country. You're fighting for a paycheck and that might motivate you not to fight so hard. So that's, that's kind of the thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm actually, I, I would like to know what the terms of the contract were with Wagner, whether there's some sort of breach of contract, you guarantee to supply us this much amount of ammunition, you haven't done this, so you're in breach of the contract, so we don't have to fight in Bakhmut anymore, so we're leaving. That's something I could see. I, I And also, it could just be a situation where they realize that this just isn't worth it anymore, which is probably what the Ukrainians are kind of going for. We're just going to make it make it hard. People have talked about casualty ratios. I don't know what the casualty ratio actually is. And, and just, just the word casualty is kind of weird, too, because a casualty can mean a death or an injury. And if someone gets wounded and they get sent to the rear and they recover and they get sent back and they get wounded again, how many casualties do you have? Did you have one casualty? Do you have two casualties? I, I don't know. I don't know how you calculate that. So... When you think about it, the the strategy of, of wearing down Russia, wearing down Russia, wearing down Russia, because I, I've said it before, Bakhmut is at the junction of these two roads, which are MSRs, main supply routes, back into the Donbass. So it was literally the perfect place for Russia to attack because they had their logistics set up to move toward those two points. And it was literally easier to attack there, even though they were getting hurt. Uh, back to casualties for a second. Um, typically, and, and this goes back to like von Clausewitz, and it's in all the books, when you're attacking, you're going to take 6%, at least in an urban environment, 6% of casualties per day. When you're defending in an urban environment, you take 3% casualties per day. That's just how the math works. It's just what happens. So you can look at any kind of leaks or whatever you want, but the math says attacking 6% per day, defending 3% per day. That's just the way the math works out. Now, if you have a unit that collapses, then of course your casualties aren't gonna be that high. We saw that in Iraq, uh, at least in Operation Desert, uh, Desert uh, well, Operation Iraqi Freedom. 
when uh, America attacked, well, the coalition attacked, and the Iraqi army just collapsed. They collapsed all the way back to Baghdad. Some people stood and fought, but for the most part, the, this army we were supposed to grind against just collapsed. So the uh, I, I can see why Wagner might remove themselves from Bakhmut, because if Russia was in breach of their contract with with Wagner, then you're not giving the, us the ammo we need. You're in breach of contract. We're done. We're going to move someplace else or lick our wounds or retrain until we can come to an agreement on this contract. And something you said there, I think, is absolutely fascinating because this has been mentioned by a number of Ukrainians I've spoken to. And that is ratios are, as you say, meaningless in the long term, because if you value life more, if you put a real emphasis on getting people frontline first aid and then getting them rapidly back to somewhere where they can actually be treated and you put emphasis on those facilities being sort of competent, etc., it does seem that Ukrainians are exceptionally good at those sort of, uh, let's say, sort of medical logistics. And from the videos we see, of course, it seems that the Russians do not have any value placed on individual life. Um, we have heard anecdotally about people being sort of just abandoned in the fields, corpses and so on. So long term, you know, that might be quite a significant difference there. The uh, humane treatment of uh, casual, uh, casualties on the Ukrainian side. Uh, well, one of the things that Ukraine has is they have a lot of Western medical support. And actually looking at this particular war, you know, the the one big difference between the global war on terror and this current conflict is that during the global war on terror, we had safe areas. We had forward operating bases that were mostly safe from enemy attack. And if if we could get a soldier who was wounded, medevac back to one of those bases within one hour, called the golden hour, we can get those soldiers back to that base. They stand a very good chance of living through whatever injury they had. They they might be they might have amputation or be disfigured, but they stand a very good chance. And I think that this is a lesson for the next war in the sense that there might not be any rear areas or adversary might not respect the red cross they might we can't rely on the fact that medevac uh, helicopters will have freedom to access wounded whether they're whether they have a red cross or not and radar can't see that you have a red cross i mean all they see is a helicopter and they're going to take that thing out so one of the things that we have to learn is that we're going to have to figure out how to do casualty care or combat ca tactical casualty care um, at the point where that soldier was injured. We're going to have to figure out how we can have whole blood uh, refrigerated and ready to go for casualties that are that are close to the front lines. But to, to get back to what you said, I think that you, Ukraine has had a lot of Western help. Um, there's the Global Medical Surgical Support Group. Um, I, I wear their t-shirts sometimes. Uh, they, they've actually been very helpful in uh, assisting with uh, surgery in Ukraine and getting these, these people the, the supplies they need. I, mean, I know that Russia has medical evacuation. Uh, I just, I, it, it's, it, it's, really, it's, it's really weird because you very rarely ever see marked 
Russian ambulances. When you do, they're the, they're the Scooby vans, you know, the little, little Scooby vans. And I, I, I know that these vehicles exist because I've seen them uh, mark them for sale to other countries. Um, they're almost like Tigra, uh, Tigra trucks, Tigra uh, MRAPs that have red crosses on them. So I know they exist, but you never see these vehicles. It, it is kind of weird. And I, I don't know if it's just uh, the old Soviet mentality. I'm sure they do take care of their casualties, but they just might be given less preference than getting ammunition to the front. Although ideally, you bring ammunition to the front, you bring the casualties back. So I, I don't know why that doesn't seem to be, why they don't seem to be practicing that at the scale to which they should be practicing that. I think they, there's even a word for it. There's cargo 200, which is wounded, and cargo 300, which is killed. Uh, I think, it's, or is it? It's Cruz Cruz de Vestia. Cruz de is the killed one. Yeah. So, uh -huh. um, yeah, that's uh, and uh, you saw that at the start of the war with more of an emphasis on the mobile incinerators, which were a pretty horrific kind of concept. You know, I I actually I, I people had told me about that, and I. All right, so I, I don't know whether that was entirely true. And let me let me explain why. Uh, I There's a part of me that wonders if those mobile incinerators were actually mobile bakeries. Because, and I, I say this because one, one of the jobs in the Russian army is literally to be a, a baker. It's all the, in the American army called MOS, or Mission Occ Military Occupational Specialty. But I understand Russia has a baker MOS. Like you bake bread, that's your job. And uh, granted, this is 30-year-old intelligence, but I, I spoke to Russian soldiers uh, who uh, were in Chechnya for a paper I did for the army. And this, uh, it, during uh, the attack in Chechnya, Russia realized it was very cold, so soldiers are going to be allotted an extra 500 calories a day. So they brought these mobile bread trucks forward, these mobile bakeries. Unfortunately, like, orders got mixed up and the bakeries never actually got pushed forward and the soldiers never got their extra calories. Has that been confirmed? These really were mobile crematoriums or, or could they be mobile bakeries? Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard the bakery one, but it's not, I guess, impossible. I mean, yeah. um, it could be, a, it could be a, a, you know, a cunning piece of Ukrainian propaganda there. Uh, what, I mean, the other thing that's gone around, um, yeah. and this is this is quite sinister, and that is that, of course, the Russians, you know, they 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 sent riot troops in the in the columns down to Kiev because they were expecting a riot situation, not yeah. necessarily a full military pushback. Um, so a lot of those destroyed vehicles, they found riot equipment, they found parade equipment, and so on. Um, yeah. More recently, there's been some research that suggests they also had kill lists. They had lists of people like teachers, politicians, um, it would be leading intellectuals, academics, anybody who was likely to push back um, on Ukraine being completely subsumed and taken over. Um, it's likely that, that tens of thousands of people. So these, you know, if they were incinerators, they may not have been sending them for their own troops, but to get rid of the evidence of the genocide of the intellectual and political class of Ukraine. And, you know, Ukrainians will say, well, there's a long history of this during the Holodomor, during the 20s. Yeah. Um, 
Ukrainian writers were killed en masse. Um, even in the Communist Party, uh, if you can imagine, you know, the sort of presidium or whatever it was, the meeting committee of, I think it was, you know, hundreds of um, deputies, communist deputies, yeah. every single one of them was arrested and shot. Not not just a handful, every single one uh, didn't didn't make it. So there's a long history of, of Russians eliminating uh, their, um, you know, potentially civilian resistance. So, yeah, I guess we'll only know in the fullness of time. Yeah. But certainly the intent was pretty gruesome, I think, from the start. Oh, I can buy that. <clears throat> I know that. I, I believe the riot gear thing. I can see that because, you know, Russia's used to Hungary in, uh, in uh, 1956. You know, let's just roll in the tanks and people will go, okay, we don't want to deal with that, right? Um, so they might have thought, like, all right, this is just going to be just a walk in the park. And then you got people filling beer bottles with gasoline like it's on. <laughs> yeah. I, when that first happened, I actually, I, uh, I think I did a video about that, just a short video about can a Molotov cocktail kill a tank? And really, no, it can't. And then you get people, whoa, what about you throwing the engine? You want to get close enough? I can tell you the first time that I was in a dangerous situation where thought of RPG had been fired. My, my hands were shaking so much that I couldn't open the feed tray cover of my machine gun. And this was a task that I had done literally thousands of times. I was so terrified that I couldn't even open the feed tray cover. I guarantee you, you are not going to be, you're not going to have the presence of mind to throw that Molotov cocktail directly in that little uh, 18-inch, I don't know what that is in centimeters, 30-some centimeter uh, hole that's the engine exhaust for a T-72. You're going to be scared out of your freaking mind. Uh, but the Ukrainians were making these Molotov cocktails like, bring it. <laughs> you know? Now, one thing a Molotov cocktail can do is it can force the crew to button up. Like they close all their hatches. Once they close their hatches, their essay, their situational awareness is uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult to maintain situational awareness with the hatches closed. And then if you have additional weapons, you can use rockets or whatever to you know destroy a tank. But you got to get real close to that Molotov cocktail to work. And you it's going to be absolutely terrifying. But these people are doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're taking beer bottles, putting gasoline in it, like, bring it. I don't think the Russians, uh, I don't think they expected that, that you're, you're just going to have regular people throw Molotovs at them. I mean, some of them might have thought they'd be met with sort of bread and flowers. Other might have expected, you know, as you say, a bit of a riot, but not, yeah. not that sort of full-scale resistance. I mean, there's the real risk as well, of course, that if you get close enough in your car... All that tank has to do is is change direction a little bit, and your your car is mangled. And uh, yeah. there are some videos actually of, you know, uh, fairly uh, I would say um, maybe inexperienced Russian tank drivers basically, you know, running over civilian cars uh, as they change direction. I've seen a couple of those recently, and we've seen other, you know, um, we've seen that video everyone has of the uh, the guys on the parade ground. And the vehicle's going around the edges and he just, you know, takes out one of the soldiers on the parade ground. And that leads to quite, I think, an, an interesting topic, which I wanted to yeah. tackle. And we talked about the equipment. We talked yeah. about on both sides, you know, whether they have the motivation or not. Yeah. Um, but how yeah. important is training 
and also how important as as identification of vehicles because in the intro we talked about um uh, you know the us having made this yeah. pack of 52 cards to help identify the huge huge range of equipment that ukraine now has and the fact they've got tons of sort of russian soviet equipment which is exactly the same as yeah. the gear that the russians have so is friendly fire going to be a real problem and and how can training uh, and identification techniques help to avoid that it's all it, it's always uh, it's always friendly fire is always a problem uh, especially when when you don't really know where you are or uh, when you're looking through thermals and everything's just a blob that's that, that is definitely an issue when, when it comes to training on, on the russian side I, I think that if if russia had a professional a more professional army things might have looked different i think there would have been an insurgency that would have made syria look like kindergarten but i think that russia might have gotten a lot further had their army been trained for an extra year had their soldiers operated as a unit and if, if they had a professional nco corps which is it's something that that not a lot of people touch on that you know one of the things that that i kind of brought to the table is that I, I was what's called an E7 or a staff sergeant. Uh, I don't believe the British Army has a similar rank. Uh, I think I think I think their equivalent of a sergeant. I think their equivalent of a sergeant first class is is just a sergeant, a straight sergeant. Uh, and then when when you become a first sergeant, I think you're a warrant officer now. I'd have to relook at the ranks again. But the um, one advantage in a lot of NATO armies is that you have this professional corps of soldiers who are not officers but they're non-commissioned officers and they're the ones who have all the tactical and technical knowledge. And so while the Lieutenant is out getting the mission orders and so on, that NCO is they're drawing fuel, they're drawing the ammunition they need. They're helping make sure all the equipment is good. The Russian army does not have that. <clears throat> and it's because it's expensive. It's expensive to have an NCO court in order to become a starting first class. Uh, I had to go to I had to go to a school called PLDC to become a sergeant. Then I had to go to a school called BNOC to become a uh, a uh, staff sergeant. Then I had to go to a school called um, ANOC to become a sergeant first class. The names of those schools have changed in in the time I've been out. But you had to go through three professional development schools. Uh, that I think it was ANOC where I actually wrote my paper about Chechnya. And so you're doing master's level work when you become an NCO in the American army. And that's, that's just not something the Russian army has because it's just in their theory, it's like, well, you're a conscript or you're contractniki. And if you're contractniki, then, then you can become an NCO. So they have these junior NCOs that are leaders. But if the Lieutenant, if when the Lieutenant gets killed, they don't know what to do. They don't really step up and take over that Lieutenant's place. They don't really, have that full picture i've actually had so twice this has happened i've had um russian soldiers you don't know whether it's true right when someone's emailing you but i've had two russian soldiers contact me and they've said can you tell me what's going on in this city because i have a buddy of mine in this city and i don't know whether he's alive or dead can you tell me if the city's been overrun yet? i was like they don't tell you <laughs> like why are you coming to me 
And I guess I, I, I guess I have a reputation that I, I'm definitely on Ukraine's side, but I'm fair when it comes to composition, disposition, status of forces. Like, I'm going to tell the truth about what's going on. And so I guess they thought, well, we'll ask Ryan Macbeth. <laughs> you know, which is like, it's so weird having another soldier reach out to me and ask me, like, is my buddy okay? Um, so like, God, my God, you're not even taught that. Um, now, what's that? What, one kind of interesting thing is like I said with the Russian army, if you want to be a leader, they say, here's a path to become an officer. If you want to be a technical professional, like you, you really like to repair missiles, you become a warrant officer. And that's those are the kind of the two paths. But that mid-level, I call it the, the uh, drive-through manager at Burger King. Do you, do you have drive-throughs in Great Britain? I, I don't know. If, if, we do, we do. We do. Yeah, right. that was the first thing that opened. I thought everybody COVID. took the train everywhere. Or the, yeah. the, I mean, you the couldn't sit down, but you could drive through, you know, when the COVID restrictions were being lifted. All right. Goodness for those, yeah. So I've often said, like, that that staff sergeant, those mid-level NCOs, we are the Burger King drive-through managers. You know, if, if the if the store manager has to leave, we can manage the store, we can close up the store, but we mainly handle the drive-through. Uh, and that's just not something that the Russian army has. And so that that mid-level leadership that can teach younger soldiers, pass on information, and there's this informal chain of command system. You know, I might know a guy in another company who's a, who's a staff sergeant. He once did a class on the javelin. And I'm like, man, I don't know the javelin that well, but I'm going to ask this sergeant and he'll come over. He'll teach the class. So those subject matter experts don't really exist in the Russian army. And that's that's a big that's a big problem. It's a huge problem because that that information dies when a person gets gets killed. That knowledge just goes away. There's no way to pass it on. Mm -hmm. um you had asked another question which i've gotten on on vehicle identification i so there's there's definitely there, there's always going to be friendly fire because when you're panicked and you're looking through night vision everything looks like a blob it's shooting at me i'm going to shoot at it right um i don't necessarily see so America likes printing out decks of cards. That's <laughs> just a thing we do for some reason. And it, it's probably because there's a game that soldiers like to play in the American army. It's called spades. And a lot of people think if you're in Hollywood, you think soldiers play poker. We don't play poker because you need money to play poker. But there, you can play spades essentially forever you know, without, without betting money on it. And there are some guys you meet. They're the fastest spades in the West. The ramp of the vehicle is coming down and guys already have the spades table out and they're dealing, you know? So uh, I, I, the American army just loves making playing cards. So I think that the average Ukrainian, they might, they probably know what a leopard looks like or a, or a chieftain or a challenger or an M1 tank. Um, but they, they also know, well, that's not Soviet era stuff so it must be nato stuff so we're not going to shoot at that so I, I don't know if if identification is that big of a deal but there's probably just some guy in tradoc the trading and doctrine command down at fort eustis who was like let's make playing cards for the ukrainians and then he gets a a bullet point in his oer his officer review made playing cards for ukrainian army good job i'm sure the ukrainians are like well you can use this to start a fire come on <laughs> You know, like that's that's really useful. like oh look the Americans they sent us fire starters along with our equipment oh how how nice are you guys for that so that I I don't know uh, whether vehicle identification is really going to be a thing or not.
Uh, I also don't know if, you know, would be probably pretty useful is uh, playing cards with the thermal signatures of those vehicles. That would be kind of useful because uh, different vehicles, they heat up in different ways, road wheels, engine position, exhaust. Like, you know, that's T72. The exhaust is coming out of that side. It's that big. That's T72 where you look at the road wheels. All right, earlier there's four road wheels and one gap. All right, that's a T55. I think hopefully the tankies won't <laughs> jump on me for that one. I'm trying to remember this stuff on the fly. But, uh, <laughs> and then you can have a version which has cheap imitation Chinese tires, which the Russian military use. Maybe they heat up differently. <laughs> that yeah, be... that 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 was that was a uh, that was a for want of a nail kind of thing right there, right? The, the cheap Chinese tires, but also the the, the cheap Chinese tires might have been perfectly fine if they just moved them once in a while. Yeah, no, fitted think... them, moved them, maintained them. I mean, that's another interesting point, I think, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it was, well, certainly to finish the the playing card bit. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice bit of PR and it's a nice bit of morale boost, and that's probably the the purpose of it. Um, but it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? And this comes also back to the idea of having an NCO class. And I think yeah. a lot of people don't realize the purpose of the Russian army in peacetime, not not. And okay, they're almost always at war, but not the full scale kind of war that we're seeing at the moment. And the purpose of the Russian army in peacetime is to firstly look good on the annual parades. You know, Victory Day, Red Square, it's got to look scary, it's got to look yeah. impressive. I mean, that's number one is to please the higher ups. The second one is that it is not a military that can be directly compared with, with Western ones because it's another form of kleptocracy. So those guys at the top, are not just going in for a career in the military. They're going in to enrich themselves. They're going in because they know that they will have junior soldiers under them that they can use as near slave labor. And if they're you know, slightly uh, sadistic, they also know there are people they can torment and torture and beat up and you know fulfill those um, you know, needs too. And of course, if you were to have a sort of NCO class, firstly, there's more people to skim money out of the system. But secondly, maybe that class of NCO might actually not want this kind of fleecing going on. It might bring level of professionalism. So I think we kind of forget, we, we look at the Russian military and think uh, they serve the same purpose as, say, the US Army. And I, I don't think that's necessarily historically the case. That, that could be the case. I, I think that, that the, the theory or the, the reason the Russian army is the way it is, is that it, it's cheap. It's cheaper to operate with a pool of conscripts. I believe now that the term is conscription is one year. I believe it was two years. Now it's one year. Um, <clears throat> so I think the idea was that we'll conscript people and Russia doesn't really have a reserve system like the British Army Reserves or the American Army Reserves or National Guard. Their reserve system is more like any, everyone who's a conscript, poof, now you're a reservist until I think age 55, you can be called back. And the idea was that let's churn through as many conscripts as possible. And then there's this base of people who at least know how to use a rifle when they're called back. I think one of the, the reasons why you saw people who were sent to the front lines and they've never even fired a rifle was that their record keeping system wasn't that good. So from what I understand, the, the, you can get a deferment. 
So a lot of people, when they, when they get that draft notice, they try to figure out how to, how do I get out of this draft? Right. Cause you do not want to be drafted in. And maybe some people, they get that draft, no, draft notice immediately. They go to the recruiter and like, I want to contract with you right now. That way at least they get some, some control over their destiny. But with the, um, with this, uh, with the, the draft, what you're getting is this pool of people that can be quickly called upon. However, since their records weren't correct, there were a lot of people who had deferments because they were in college. There was a deferment because this happened, a medical deferment, and another deferment. But their computer system just said, oh, this person was conscripted. And they were conscripted, they just never went to training. So you have people who are pulled out. They're 30 years old. They're pulled out and they're like, hey, all right, you got to do your service now. You got you got to go. Like, but I've never even been trained. It's because their system doesn't have a separate classification for somebody who was deferred and didn't actually go to training. I think that's how you you wound up with that. Um, I know at, at least at first, Russia was having a heck of a time just providing for this influx of soldiers. And the American army had a hard time with it too during, um, after the terrorist attacks, when all of a sudden we, we had these national guard bases that were decrepit, <laughs> you know, like they were falling apart because we never really gave them a lot of money and a lot of missions. And all of a sudden you have this influx of soldiers who's getting trained up to go to Afghanistan and later Iraq. And we got to feed these people. We got to clothe these people. We got to provide good housing. And so there's people staying in like World War II era barracks. You know, I think you saw that in Russia with people sleeping on the ground. Like we, we don't have housing for these people. What do we do? You know, now that's where an NCO Corps would have said, all right, let's go find some tents. People like me would go out and steal them, you know, and like put them up. I was a scrounger. I, I 100% admit I was a thief. Wasn't a thief in the sense of like I was stealing for pleasure, profit, or personal safety. But if my platoon needed toilet paper, believe me, I'm going to acquire some toilet paper one way or the other. Mm. <laughs> and that, that's a bit like some of those scenes in, um, I think it's uh, in All Quiet on the Western Front, one of those old First World War ones where they, you know, they yeah. need to go out and steal some food or whatever to keep going. I mean, you do what you you have to do. And uh, yeah. listening to some of the interviews of. Uh, uh, you know the foreign legion as it were who volunteered in ukraine they were at the sort of back of the queue for equipment and you have similar stories just having to scrounge and steal and find stuff and you know beg and actually well, start crowdsourcing that stuff back home for equipment. it's hard i'm actually so on um on uh may 20th i'm actually flying down to texas for a uh there, there's a cocktail party that ultra is holding ultra is the ukraine logistics, uh, you know, I can't remember the whole acronym, but ULTRA essentially is the part of the um, Ukrainian Freedom Fund. And they they provide the logistics for volunteers from America who are going over to Ukraine because you have to bring all your own stuff. And like when I deployed to Iraq, when I deployed to Egypt, we had an entire logistical arm that took care of the travel arrangements, the food, where were you going to stay? how we get from the airport to the, 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 um, you know, the front lines or whatever. And, and you go to CIF, the central issuing facility, they're issuing you so much stuff. They put it in a big duffel bag. You have all this stuff. Well, for volunteers, they have to bring all their own equipment and they have to coordinate all their own travel. Well, ultra is, is doing that. And what's funny is I, I've had people say like, you're telling the Russians you're going to be in Dallas, Texas. 
Let me tell you something about Texas, son. This ain't Paris. <laughs> the Russians, the Russians want to do something to me in Texas. They, they better bring a tank <laughs> because it's uh, Texas is an open carry state, and they uh, they they sure as heck love to do that there. So uh, I think the Russians would stand out a bit like a sore thumb, if I'm honest. There, I don't think much chance of trouble. Not a lot of not a lot of Adidas track suits in Texas. I'll, I'll tell you that. Well, going back to the training topic, um, and what we've seen is largely an attritional war. We've seen a very 20th century war with a bit of 21st century tech, uh, you know, with the drones and so on. But largely it's been about artillery. It's been about sort of trenches, slow moving front lines. That That's the picture over, you know apart from a few little punctuated uh, periods of movement that reminiscent of the Second World War, Kharkiv, Kherson, it's all been pretty sort of First World War kind of stuff. Um, for this spring offensive, what are the Ukrainians going to have to do to change that? And do you think they have managed to sort of master this art of, uh, you know, combined arms, which many of the military people I've spoken to have said this is going to be absolutely crucial, uh, being able to go beyond the kind of tactics that we've seen so far in order to uh, eject the Russians from I, their territory. I think they, they've definitely mastered the combined arms uh, to a point that that even the American army is looking at, at things that they've done and going, maybe we can do things better. <clears throat> um one of those things is when it comes to artillery, uh, Ukraine essentially invented an Uber app for artillery. And this is, this is something that will, would never happen in the American army. But the, uh, the Ukrainians have an app where they, they encounter an enemy strong point and they say, I need artillery at this location. Who can take this mission? And then units will bid. I can take, I'm close enough. I can take this mission. And that has empowered a low-level warfighter, comparatively low-level warfighter, probably a lieutenant you know, in, in a platoon, who doesn't have integrated artillery. There's no planned fires. Nobody um, gave that comp uh, their company commander, here's an artillery asset that's just for you. Instead, they have a pool of artillery assets that anybody can call on for any reason, and they can say, I need artillery here. That would never happen in the American army because I'll tell you this, the brigade commander is not giving up his most casually producing weapon to some corporal who thinks it's a good idea to blow up a building. Not going to happen. But Ukraine thinks differently. And they've trusted their lower level soldiers uh, with, this, with this app and that they, they know when it's best to call in artillery. That might be something that the American military might want to think about, especially since we're, we're pivoting towards China or I should say we're pivoting. I don't want to get you demonetized. We're pivoting towards the Pacific and West Taiwan. <laughs> so we're thinking about how we're going to fight West Taiwan in the Pacific. And we might need to get to a point where a soldier can call in a high Mars strike because they believe this thing is, is needed to accomplish their mission. So that, that's one thing they've done. They've done pretty darn well. It's this integration. Uh, I've also seen good integration with their infantry fighting vehicles and armor. Uh, and another thing they're good at is um, they're, they're using situational minefields, which is something 
I've never seen before. I like it. So situational minefields are, are it, it's it's kind of like uh, it's kind of it's kind of like a chief warrant officer five. It's like you know they exist, but you've never actually seen one. So a situational minefield is essentially an artillery delivered minefield. In, in the American Army, we call it RAMS or um, remote anti armor mine system RAMS. So these minefields are laid by one five five Howards of shells that have nine um, anti tank landmines in them. And depending on how you detonate them, they either create a minefield uh, 200 by 200 meters in length or 400 by 400 meters in length. And what Ukraine has done is they, you know, normally people use minefields as protective minefields. They'll create a minefield so that the enemy doesn't attack their position, or they'll create a minefield to delay, disrupt, or channelize the adversary. Like you might put a minefield on your flank, you don't have enough troops to look at your flank. Uh, so you keep a, an observation post on your flank over watching the minefield. If the enemy tries to flank you, they run into the minefield. It gives you enough time to move your troops. Well, Ukrainians use these situational minefields, which is it, it's bonkers. I've never seen it before because they'll, if they notice the Russians attacking, they'll fire mines directly into their axis of attack or on the flanks of their axis of attack. And, and it, it, it bothers me when I talk about it. I mean, I'm 100% on the side of Ukraine, but I think of those poor freaking kids who are just going right into the minefield again. And they and you'd think like the next vehicle would go, maybe I shouldn't go this way, but they go that way anyway. And boom, and now they're dead. And that, oh my God, it's, it's, it, it's so fun. It, it's, it's good that Ukraine has these munitions. Absolutely. And I've said this before, you know, if, if you're in my way of going home and it's been you and me, more than likely it's going to be you. For some reason, Russia just hasn't, they haven't figured out how to deal with these situational minefields and they're rushing into minefields again and again and they're getting blown up. And I, that's got to be a training thing or I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I already, have, I, I already know, or at least I'm pretty darn sure that when Ukraine breaches um through these trenches one of the things they're going to do is they're going to put situational minefields on the flanks so when russia tries to reinforce they're going to run right into those situational minefields and i i got this feeling they're just going to keep doing it and, it, and it, it's it's horrible it, it's 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 great that ukraine has these weapon systems I, i'm sorry if i if i sound so sympathetic but I mean, you're talking to a guy who's picked up burned body parts off the ground. So I might have a, a little bit of a, a different um, view, you know, than people who just played Call of Duty, you know. But, uh, man, that, that's so that is one thing that Ukraine has, has figured out. It's how to employ these situational minefields. And they do work well in combined arms. That's it's it's actually very impressive what they've done. And there's a lot that the West can learn for a future conflict from what's been going on there. And this is a, a an absolutely fascinating point you make there yeah. about the Russians learning. Yeah. I mean, one of the fears was that because the war is dragging on for yeah. such a considerable amount of time, the Russians would really start to learn. They would start to, um, you know, pass those techniques down through, and uh, and 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 the so-called ratios would start to go in, you know, not in Ukraine's favor, but. The sort of hierarchy that we see in the Russian army, yeah. which ought to make it easier to pass those kind of learnings down, um, seem to be undermined by the sort of competition that you have between Wagner, the regular forces, and even within the regular forces, um, 
you know, contempt, not just for the individuals lower down, but also one gets the impression there's probably quite a lot of competition between the higher ups as well. I mean, does this sort of disjointedness prevent them from actually learning these lessons that you've been talking about? I think so. I think they've learned some lessons. And I think that some of those lessons might be that they learned how to use EW, electronic warfare. And that that was kind of proven when in the first couple of days, those um, Baraktar drones just caused havoc among Russian forces. And then Russia figured, all right, we need to get our air defense up here. We need to use more EW, electronic warfare, to, to jam these drones. Russia's also figured out how to use their own drones. Uh, they haven't pushed uh, FOs or forward observers down to the individual companies yet, which is something that they, like, again, I don't know why they haven't done that. Why, why the only people who have FOs are the uh, special forces and the paratroopers. They have uh, forward observers who can call in artillery. Um, but, you know, Russia main, remains fixed on um, planned fires, like planned artillery fires. Um and I think I think the reason why a lot of, of changes haven't been pushed down, it's not necessarily because of the officer class, it's because they don't have that professional NCO class. So you might have privates who learned something like we shouldn't do things this way, we should actually do things this way. But nobody's ever gonna listen to. And be, you know, even if they're the senior private who's still alive when the replacement troops come in, they, they might make that senior private poof, you're a sergeant, notionally for, for disciplinary stuff and so on. But just because you're, you're a junior sergeant now in charge of these new privates doesn't mean anyone's going to listen to you like, hey, man, we should, we should maybe go around this minefield instead of charging right through it. Maybe we should stop, wait for our, uh, our uh, vehicles that have mine rollers to try to push through this minefield instead of just charging right through it. So I think, again, it's a lack of the professional NCO Corps. Officers, I again, people get mad at me when I say this. Russia has a fairly competent officer corps because they're a professionally trained officer corps. Things they do well, electronic warfare, air defense, um, air defense. Uh, I'm sure there's more stuff. All I can think of really is electronic warfare, air defense, they, they tend, anything that involves senior officers doing stuff, oh, artillery, planned fires. They tend to do those three things, artillery, planned war, uh, artillery, um, air defense, and electronic warfare fairly well because it's officers who've been trained, who've gone to school, who know what they're doing. When they have to get junior subordinates into the, into the mix, they start screwing up. And that's, that's an issue. So I, I don't know, there might be officers who want to change the way things are done, but they, they just can't get all that information down to the lower level units because they don't have that NCO core that can in, enforce those standards and, and you know, re, uh, change the way they do things. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, I know we've got only one or two sort of questions left time for mm -hmm. that. Um, but the story that broke yesterday was that the HIMARS that have been incredibly effective at disrupting, um, yeah. you know, um, whether it's barracks or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, storage facilities or yeah. logistics, um, that actually the Russians have started to introduce some kind of electronic jamming that is making HIMARS less effective. So that exactly talks to perhaps learning some of the lessons there. Is, is that a worry at all as we approach the spring offensive? I don't 
think so. And, and I, I thought about making a video about this, but there's there's things I don't want to talk about. Um, but so in a, in a general sense, I actually I don't know if they have the M31A1 rocket because there's there's a system. So let me back up for a second. So jamming when you when you jam enemy defenses or when you jam enemy radar or voice communications or gps essentially imagine you're in a crowded room and you're trying to listen to somebody but everybody is speaking louder and so you can't quite hear it. that's essentially jamming you're just putting out more electronic noise and the receiver can't get the intended message so the way HIMARS works is that it gets its own gps location and from that, you say, you download this information of the missiles. This is where you're going. You do a bunch of stuff and you launch the missiles. Now, the missiles can be GPS guided, but they also have internal guidance. And I'm not going to talk about that. But the internal guidance should be fairly accurate. So Russia can jam GPS all they want, but the internal guidance inside the M31A1 should be able to, you know, you want to jam GPS, knock yourself out. I've got internal guidance that knows where I'm supposed to go anyway. So there's that. Now, if it's jamming the GPS signals of the HIMARS launcher, that could probably be a problem. But if you're 40 miles or whatever that is in kilometers, uh, 61 kilometers back from the Russian EW, and EW is electronic warfare. Those are expensive systems. You're not going to put them on the front line directly. You're going to have to have them back and you're covering certain areas. So it might be difficult to jam something that's like beyond the curvature of the earth, you know? And I, I, I don't know if you could jam a GPS signal from that far away. So even if you could, if the launcher system knows, okay, I am here, and you have alternate ways of saying, okay, I am here, and you're letting the launcher system know this is my location, definitely. You're firing in a degraded condition. I think it just might take you longer to actually perform that fire mission, but I'm not going to say that Russia jamming GPS signals. If they're jamming GPS signals at the target, that could be an issue, but the internal guidance system should take over and still be able to be fairly accurate. Um, but I, I don't want to get too deep into the capabilities of those systems. I think the last the last question, really, I and mean, we've talked a lot about the kind of uh, challenges of uh, the huge range of equipment, the training and so on. In total, it sounds like, you know, you're pretty optimistic about the Ukrainians' capability to use the equipment that's being given them. Uh, whether that spring offensive, uh, you know, is a big bang kind of thing or whether it actually rolls out over many months, we we, we don't know. We do know Ukraine is going to be economical with the force. It's not going to fritter away its equipment and troops. They're going to think very carefully about that. Overall, do you think there's a chance Ukraine could sort of wrap this up? and uh, defeat Russia this year? Um, or is this likely to drag on? Or, or is that really just in the lap of the gods at this point? I don't think they have a choice. I think that they have three to nine months to, to make uh, the, a kind of, the kind of breakthrough or regain territory that gets them to the peace table from a position of strength. NATO is not going to keep giving them weapons forever. 
<clears throat> now, if, if they stay where they are in those trench lines, that's going to be an issue. And NATO's going to say, you know what, guys, you, you can't do this. So not, not, not to offend my British brothers in any way, but we needed Saratoga to get the French in on our side to defeat the British. Ukraine needs a Yorktown. Ukraine needs a Yorktown. And with the their Yorktown moment comes additional funding. I think that if they can make a breakthrough, that's gonna that's gonna move the window a little bit more because people are gonna go, oh my God, they were able to retake this and this and this and this. And now the map looks different. Yes, we should keep giving them weapons. But they they must accomplish this breakthrough. There, there must be. I don't even know if it's called, I don't know if you can call it a counteroffensive, because a counteroffensive should kind of be close to an offensive. So I think it's really just an offensive right now, right? This is counteroffensive. I even say counteroffensive. They must launch an offensive that has a decisive uh, blow to Russia. And either they come to the peace table from a position of strength, and Russia goes, you know what? This isn't worth it anymore. We're just going to negotiate. And then I think in that case, what I see are peacekeepers in Crimea and peacekeepers in the Donbass for the next 30 years, just like we have in Sinai. And I believe still in Kosovo, we still have peacekeepers. So I see a situation like that. Or a situation where they break through and it buys them another six to nine months and they get more NATO weapons for the next six to nine months and then they go and they finish the fight. Uh, but what I don't see is a million more Russian troops. Now, the bad thing is I don't see a million more Ukrainian troops either. So they, they've got to, they, they have this six to nine month window to finish the fight uh, or to at least prove that they can create a, defi- a decisive victory, a decisive Yorktown type victory. No offense to my uh, British brothers and, uh, and sisters over there on the island. We, we've been allies for longer than we've been enemies. No, no offense taken there. I think it's a very useful historical uh, analogy of how you uh, can turn it around and, and, and get your own way. And I think, you know, we are rooting for Ukrainians. Um, you know, we don't necessarily want Russia to send civil war and collapse completely. Well, I mean, a lot of Ukrainians want that. But essentially, you know, pushing Russia out then leaving them to deal with their own problems, which they're going to have to do eventually, I think is is going to be the sort of sweet spot we're all hoping for there. And they may not be able to fully take Crimea, but if they can put siege to it and make it untenable and uneconomic for the Russians, then as you say, that is a strong negotiating position to to be in. Crimea, is a, uh, that's a tough one because that's, that's the size of the American state of Massachusetts. Uh, it's like Wales or something to you guys. Like, uh, it's it's really big <clears throat> it's big and then you got to do a water crossing and oh man water crossings are tough and it's not just a small water crossing that's that's a big water crossing so if it i think if russian forces collapse like they they just start to collapse and collapse and collapse crimea might be on the table at least some parts of Crimea, that that might be on the table. And if they can get within high Mars strike of the of the Kirk Strait Bridge, that that's a big problem right there. That's a that, that's not a problem for Russia. That's a dilemma. Now, who do you reinforce? Do you reinforce the eastern side? Do you reinforce Crimea by boat? What do you do? And then you're probably dealing with refugees trying to get out of Crimea. That's a tough one. And uh, actually, there was a theory. I, I had talked about this uh, this video 
that we saw a couple of days ago on the third, where there was a drone strike against the Kremlin. And you know, people people said that it was Ukraine. People said it was a false flag. Thinking, you know, it could be, it could be an internal faction that doesn't want, you know, this war anymore, or it could be homegrown terrorism. That happens during wartime too. There's plenty of Tartars who don't like Russia. There's there's plenty of Chechens who still got a grudge. So could you see Tartars? I'm sure there's still Tartars in Crimea, right? Yeah, you know, those guys operating as partisans, blowing up bridges. There's even, you know, Zed patriots who uh, don't think Putin is 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 executing the war successfully enough. And uh, you can see, you know, one interpretation would be Daria Dugina and also this other guy who's blown up in a cafe with a little, you know, statuette. Yeah, uh, you know, you can see that as being a signal perhaps sent from the secret, uh, you know, from the FSB to the extreme patriots saying stay in your lane equally you know exploding that little firework over uh, putin's home as it were could be a signal to say yeah you're you're mucking this up and uh, here's a little signal for you i mean who knows at this point it's a very murky affair um nonetheless yeah i mean to end on the crimea one any inroads into crimea would almost certainly create an extreme political storm in Russia, it would look incredibly bad. Putin would look extremely weak, and any gains that he's made over the last decade would be undone uh, very visibly. And I know, I know, Ben Hodges thinks that Crimea is the key to to uh, really defeating Russia. Um, nonetheless, you know, huge challenges, uh, military, physical, logistical, remain there. And uh, well, you know, when that starts, I'd love to be able to kind of un- unpick it with you. I'll, you know where to find me. <laughs> I mean, this has been a huge, huge pleasure, uh, Ryan. And, uh, you know, it's fun doing it on, on um, you know, the day of the coronation, which we have there and all those wonderful allusions to, uh, you know, to American uh, War of Independence. And um, I'm not a I'm not an arch royalist, so I, I find this, you know, really amusing, uh, but also incredibly insightful. And um you know, I think uh, I think this has been an incredibly enjoyable conversation, and I've learned a huge amount from it. Um, and I do advise people to check out your videos because um, there's a huge amount there on equipment, tactics, and based on the experience that you have in the in the military. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I really appreciate being invited on your show. <laughs>